Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you're a Latter-day Saint, you've probably heard of W.W. Phelps, and no doubt you've probably sung some of his hymns. But did you know that he printed the Book of Commandments and other early church works? Or that he was one of the Council of Presidents that guided the church in Kirtland, Ohio, and helped publish the newspaper in Nauvoo, Illinois? Or as a political clerk, he assisted Joseph Smith in his roles as mayor of Nauvoo and contender for the U.S. presidency. Phelps also played a key role in the Council of Fifty, He went west with the saints, helped propose the state of Deseret, and published prose and poetry in the Deseret News and his Deseret Almanac. Phelps' strong feelings even put him at odds with church leaders, and he was excommunicated three times, rejoining each time. Dr. Bruce Van Orden explores Phelps' fascinating life in the first ever comprehensive biography on him, entitled, We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. Phelps. Dr. Orden makes some compelling arguments that have never been fully teased out by scholars. Whether you're a Latter-day Saint historian, an American religion scholar, or just an interested student of history, you'll definitely enjoy this conversation. Welcome, everyone, to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today we have an awesome guest. I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Van Orden, who wrote an amazing biography on W.W. Phelps called We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. Phelps. It was published uh, late in 2018. It was published by BYU, the Religious Study Center, and, and with in unison with Deseret Book. And I'm just really excited to have Bruce on the show. Bruce, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Greetings to you. It's an honor to be associated with you, and I really appreciate our friendship and collegiality. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually met Bruce at BYU, and uh, I met, I talked with him more at the John Whitmer Historical Association. He's a really great guy. He has been a professor for the church history department for a long time. Um, he's a great scholar, uh, just a really down-to-earth guy, too. So I'm just so thankful to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Certainly. Awesome. So, Bruce, um, could you ex- uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and let the audience know who you are and um, just kind of give us a background of basically how you became a scholar of Mormonism. Well, for one thing, I'm a senior citizen now and retired from uh, uh, full-time teaching and being a professor. Uh, However, uh, I fell in love with writing about historical things, and I did have this project in mind before I retired, and I've continued to write other things, and I have other projects ahead. And as long as I'm able, I plan to keep writing and participating in the whole historical enterprise. Uh, I was born in 1946 in Salt Lake City uh, from strong Latter-day Saint ancestry and heritage. Uh, I often make the statement that uh, most of my genealogy for four or five generations, or six or seven maybe, uh, back uh, was done before I was born. And all these people were baptized for the dead before I was born. However, I've uh, done a lot of uh, genealogy and family history since that time and certainly written about people. Anyway, uh, early in my life, uh, my family was transferred out to North Platte, Nebraska, and that was a small branch of less than 100 people. Uh, I started getting uh, 
piano lessons at age nine uh, with the idea that I could uh, play the Latter-day Saint music. And I got really involved with that. I learned to play all the hymns and I began accompanying in various of the church meetings and services. Uh, in the process, I noticed that some of the hymns and anthems that we sang most frequently in sacrament meeting and Sunday school were written by this fellow named William W. Phelps. And uh, I found that curious and I really started to enjoy his theology even as a young man. Um, I paid attention to him uh, whenever I heard his name. And of course, it came up in the Doctrine and Covenants a few times when I studied that as a, a youth and as a missionary and uh, later in my professional career. I went on a mission to uh, Germany. It was a South German mission headquartered in Munich. Uh, this was 1965 to 1967. Uh, I loved the uh, German people, the uh, German language, the German culture, even the German na nation. And so I consider that my second language and my second homeland. And often I've uh, been over there with my wife and other family members. Uh, even recently, uh, I gave a number of lectures in the German language about W.W. W. Phelps to LDS Institute groups in, in Germany. I didn't know you speak German. Yeah, that's definitely my second language. <laughs> uh, that's a big part of my life, no question about it. And it even resonates throughout the rest of my family. I have two other members of my family who speak it well. As, oh, terrific. Uh, also. Anyway, um, I came back to uh, BYU and completed my studies. I majored in German. Shortly after I returned, I determined I wanted to be a teacher. I enjoyed being a teacher of groups on my mission. Uh, and I found that I wasn't afraid of being in front of people. So uh, I heard about the LDS seminary system. I had been a seminary student myself in high school. Uh, and I got involved with all the training that was involved in that. And we were expected to obtain a teaching certificate uh, in the state of Utah or whatever, uh, so that we could be considered qualified to teach seminary. And I did that. That requirement, by the way, no longer exists. But in 1970, I began as a LDS seminary teacher for release time uh, at a high school in Salt Lake City. Uh, I spent three years there, and then I was transferred to the institute system in Southern California, and I was there for uh, six years. I also helped supervise early morning seminary there. Then I was transferred uh, in 1979 to the church office building where I helped write uh, curriculum items for so many different courses in both seminary and institute. And in the process of all those years, I obtained uh, my master's degree and then my doctor's degree in, uh, uh, in, in history, where I emphasized American, Mormon, and modern European history. Uh, as I began uh, teaching seminary, clearly I, I taught church history and was very interested in it. I liked, however, all the scriptures, too. Uh, I started uh, going to Mormon History Association meetings out of intense desire that I was gaining on history in the late 1970s and went annually for many, many years, presented a number of those. Um, anyway, when I joined the faculty at BYU in 1986, after obtaining my uh, doctorate, I, I was in the Department of Church History and Doctrine, and uh, I did teach church history classes, but I also enjoyed teaching the scripture classes. I've been to Jerusalem, uh, which was Old and New Testament, for a year. Uh, I directed Vienna Study Abroad that was very much connected with European history and the German language. I've also been uh, involved in political science things and 
was head of the Washington Seminar for BYU one semester. So I consider myself eclectic and and, and versatile, trying to do several different kinds of things. But when it comes to uh, historical research and writing, I, I definitely plan to keep up with that the rest of my life. I had no idea about, I didn't know about a lot of that stuff with you. So that's really, that's, that's really great. Um, I wanted to say that I, 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 and I want the listeners to know, so I'm not just plugging this because, you know, I, I like Mormon history too. I consider myself a scholar in Mormon history or an upcoming scholar. I'm still learning like from people like Bruce, but this book is really good. Um, oftentimes when you hear a Deseret book, you often think of devotional books, but it's with, it's, it's in unison with BYU and the religious study center and Bruce did an excellent job. I think this book is a very objective book on W.W. Phelps. And it really just goes to show the intense work that you did because you started writing this book early in the 1990s when you were, you know, a new a new uh, faculty member for the church history to for the church history uh, and doctrine department. Correct. And I uh, was well along, I thought maybe halfway through. Uh, when I got going in it again about four years ago, uh, I realized I was far from being halfway done because there was so much more uh, in the Nauvoo period than I had ever imagined. Uh, but I did work on it, and then I stopped. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons for that, but I guess the biggest single reason is that uh, uh, writing church history materials in an honest way was something we couldn't do uh, and still be paid by the church in many of those years. Uh, those changes have occurred, and now we can do essentially what we feel like with total academic freedom. Uh, and especially since I'm retired, I don't worry about any of that anyway. But uh, it's true that uh, Brigham Young University, uh, with its religious studies center, saw the real value of this biography, and I received no challenge to uh, any of the conclusions I came to. Uh, and you said that I've been objective, and I've told both the good and the uh, not so good things about W.W. W. Phelps. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. So let's start talking about W.W. W. Phelps. So for most people who might be listening, they most if they're Latter Day Saints or if they're part of the Latter Day Saint movement, they're often very familiar with W.W. W. Phelps because of his hymn writing. I grew up in the Bicker Tonight Church. I'm still a member of the Bicker Tonight Church. I'm familiar with W.W. W. Phelps. We sing hymns from him in our hymnal. So most Latter Day Saints know who he is, but. You wrote the first comprehensive biography on W.W. W. Phelps, and it's quite a lengthy book. And it's not, and, and I, I don't say lengthy in a bad way. It's a great length, and it's very detailed. So it kind of goes to show you that a lot of us might think we know W.W. W. Phelps from his hymn writing, but who was the real W.W. W. Phelps? Because you bring out a lot of things I think most people aren't familiar with in what he di actually did in the early church and how influential he actually was. Uh, I am curious, before I answer that, uh, what are the hymns, as you may remember them, that are sung, uh, composed by W.W. Phelps in the Bicker Tonight movement? Oh, that's a, okay. So we'll sing and we'll shout. That's definitely the big one. And that's the one we often sing. But it's interesting because I grew up my whole life singing that song. We have a completely different tune to it. And it's much more, it's actually, I think it's much more upbeat. And I think it was actually composed by a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Bicker Tonight. So when I actually heard years later, the version that most other Latter-day Saints sing of that song, I was like, wait a minute, this isn't the song that I grew up singing. <laughs> so it's that was kind of my first little hint as to, okay, W.W. Phelps wrote this hymn, but there's a different tune to it. And then I kind of realized that my church has its own history with the hymns. And 
It was really interesting. There's a few others, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I'd have to get the Saints hymnal out that we use. But we definitely have them, and he's mentioned they're in there quite a bit. Well, we'll have to promise ourselves that we'll talk about that uh, other version of music. Uh, I am a musician to a certain extent, and I would love to see uh, the music to that hymn uh, that you guys use. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. We'll, get back, uh, absolutely. To, we'll get back to this, uh, who is the real WWE? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing, he's multifaceted. And if uh, a person writes a biography about a person who has so many talents and has contributed in so many different ways, you're going to see uh, various personality traits uh, uh, for the good and not so good. Uh, and getting to the real W.W. Phelps means that you have to look at his whole life. He was definitely a firebrand, political, newspaper, partisan newspaper editor and publisher and writer of essays prior to his joining the uh, Latter-day Saint movement in 1831. Uh, and when he came to the church, it was after he had investigated it for uh, over a year. Uh, he was one of the first ones to pick up copies of the Book of Mormon uh, from the publisher there in Palmyra at the newspaper. Uh, and as it, all newspaper editors knew each other, especially within a certain radius, and he was fully aware of what was going on in publishing this book. So he went and bought a number of copies uh, within days of its appearance, read it uh, thoroughly along with his wife, also sold copies of it in his bookstore of his publishing house in Canandaigua. That's where he lived. And that's only 12 miles away from Palmyra. He had a number of uh, people who criticized him, who were opposed to him politically, for sure. Uh, and then when he started investigating Mormonism, some of the people he was uh, allied with politically uh, became frustrated with him. And he was uh, put in jail for indebtedness. This was still a time in New York State when it was possible to uh, jail a person who was not able on the spot to pay his debts. It was not used as much as it had been, but it was used on this case by those people who were sustaining his a newspaper effort in uh, Canandaigua, and this was the last straw. He had already talked a lot with Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and Martin Harris and knew uh, a few other Latter-day Saints and and even was converted, essentially. But he hadn't left uh, his uh, very significant spot as an editor yet. But when this happened, he decided, okay, uh, I, I'm leaving this behind. Uh, he gave up his editorship of the Ontario Phoenix in Canandaigua, uh, gathered his family, uh, went by uh, barge on the Erie Canal, then by schooner on the Lake Erie and appeared at Fairport Ar Harbor, and then walked with his family another 12 miles to Kirtland and knocked on the door where Joseph Smith was living and said, uh, I'm here now. Uh, you know me. You know what I can do. What would you like me to do? And is there a revelation you could get for me like you've received revelations for other individuals? And the result was uh, a revelation of about 10 verses. It appears in both uh, the LDS Doctrine and Covenants and the Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants is section 55. I, I'm not at all conversant about where you'd find it in your Doctrine and Covenants, but it, it was a significant thing. And he was called right away to uh, assist Joseph Smith with major things and to be involved with printing. And within a week of his. Um, being baptized immediately and ordained an elder, he went as an advisor, uh, one of six elders who went with Joseph Smith to 
the land, to Missouri to identify the land of Zion that had been prophesied about several times in in Revelations. And so he once he got there, he was called as printer unto the church. And so for the uh, his entire time in the church, and there was about 18 months when he was out of the church between 1831 and 1844 when Joseph Smith died. But during that entire time, he was definitely involved in printing and publishing. Uh, so that's one aspect to it. But he was also uh, a significant church leader. Uh, he was called to uh, help supervise the uh, the incoming Latter-day Saints to their new colony in Jackson County, which they named Zion. Uh, uh, it was a body of high priests, but he was pretty much the supervising high priest over spiritual matters. Later, he was called to be one of the presidents of the church in Missouri, where there was a presidency and a high council to match the presidency and high council that existed in Ohio. And so for a long time, uh, between 18, uh, uh, well, essentially from 1832, when he arrived with a printing press that he had bought with church funds, and he arrived with a printing press in Independence and established that organization called W.W. Phelps and Company. From that moment uh, until uh, Joseph Smith came to live in Missouri in 1837, uh, pardon me, 1838, until uh, during that whole time, this axis uh, of power between the Missouri portion of the church with the presidency and the Ohio portion of the church with the presidency uh, was very significant. They were over 800 miles apart, and they had to communicate by letter, or sometimes people uh, were sent back and forth to take messages. Uh, and Joseph Smith did appear one time uh, in 1832 uh, as a visitor uh, and consulted with the high priest there. But ge generally speaking, it was a long-distance relationship and not an easy one. Uh, but Phelps was uh, at the forefront of the Missouri part because he was literate and could write. And so the letters that were written from the Missouri high priests and presidency were written by him. And then when Joseph Smith or other high priests in Ohio wrote to the Missouri saints, they first addressed it to him. And uh, all of the major documents that were compiled by the Missouri saints as they uh, ran into trouble with Jackson County. Uh, vigilantes casting them out of the county, and then problems in Clay County, and then later in Caldwell County. Uh, he was the writer of all these documents that uh, interacted with government officials. So he was definitely a writer, and in Section 57 of the Doctrine and Covenants that called him to be printer unto the church, he was called to send writings to the ends of the earth uh, to help build up the kingdom of God on the earth. So he was a writer, publisher, church leader. Uh, he spent 11 months uh, in Kirtland uh, from May 1835 to uh, April 1836. He was there by invitation. All of the Missouri leadership was called to go and help with the completion of the new house of the Lord that was being constructed in Kirtland. Uh, and during that sojourn, uh, the church was governed by the Council of Presidents, which consisted of the presidency of the church in Ohio, the presidency of the church in Missouri, and the presidency of the high priesthood. Actually, Joseph Smith was president of the high priesthood. He was considered the prophet, uh, the translator and seer, but he was also president of the church in Ohio at the same time. But there were nine presidents that uh, served as this council of presidents in Ohio in 1836, pardon me, 1835 and 1836, 
and so many big events took place during that time, uh, in addition to completing the temple and having the Kirtland Endowment. For one thing, W.W. Uh, w. Phelps was the main uh, scribe uh, with Joseph Smith as the Book of Abraham project unfolded in Kirtland. Uh, so, yes, he was a scribe, and he represented the presidents, and he wrote their documents and all that kind of thing. And uh, by the time the Kirtland Temple was dedicated, he had written uh, 25 hymns uh, by himself and had adapted or made some changes to texts of 37 more, and he helped publish the hymn book, uh, the first hymn book, uh, Sacred Hymns, uh, in Kirtland in 1835 and 1836. Uh, and of those 90 hymns, with no music text, just the, uh, the words, uh, he was involved with 62 of the first 90. So he was definitely involved with all of that. Uh, he helped publish the Doctrine and Covenants as it came out. By the way, he was uh, the publisher of the a book of commandments in Jackson County that was soon to get out, but it was destroyed. Uh, most of the copies uh, by the vigilantes in uh, July of 1833. So that project fell apart, but in its place came the Doctrine and Covenants, which he also helped publish in 1835. So those are big things that he did. Wow. That's awesome. It's really interesting to me how you bring out uh, Phelps's early life as a partisan printer and publisher and bookseller, and how Joseph Smith really utilized that skill from the ver- from the very onset. From when Phelps joins the church, it kind of reminded me of Sidney Rigdon because when Sidney Rigdon joins the church, you know he was this great preacher, he was this great orator. Joseph Smith saw the skill in Sidney Rigdon, so he looked up to Sidney Rigdon, kind of made him a close confidant. But what your book really brings out, and what you're talking about now, is that Phelps was a really close confidant of Joseph. Smith too. And Joseph Smith looked at Phelps in a very similar way. I, I would argue that he looked at Sidney Rigdon in the sense of that Phelps was older. He was more experienced. He had these skills that Joseph Smith didn't have. And Joseph Smith really uh, became close with Phelps and Phelps was a confidant of Smith. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely. In fact, uh, before I even started writing anything, I had come to the conclusion uh, that the two most learned men uh, in the early days of Mormonism were Sidney Rigdon and W.W. Phelps. Uh, they both took a little bit of pride in that, so they did have that issue. Uh, th- there's even a passage in section 57 of the Doctrine and Covenants that says that Phelps seeketh to excel and he needs to humble himself. But you're absolutely right that uh, uh, they were the ones and they had a skill set, separate kinds of skills, of course, but uh, they both were utilized and Joseph Smith looked to them as advisors. Uh, they were both approximately the same age. Uh, when Phelps joined the church, he was 39. Joseph Smith was 25. Uh, Sidney Rigdon was 38. So they were close to the same age. Uh, in fact, all of the major advisors to Joseph Smith were older than he, except uh, Oliver Cowdery, who was just a bit younger. And then uh, some of the when the 12 apostles came into significance, and they gradually did, and and from 1841 to 1844, they were very significant. And most of them were younger than Joseph Smith. Uh, or about the same age, uh, but in those early days, in the uh, from 1831, I would say through 1839, uh, uh, all of his major advisors are older than he, uh, and sometimes significantly older, uh, except Oliver Cowdery. That's interesting stuff. So everything that you're saying, 
it kind of sounds like you're trying to rehabilitate Phelps. And that was kind of the question I wanted to ask is that most of the stuff that you had said, I certainly wasn't familiar with, with Phelps. I had learned a little bit here and there, but you really bring out details about his life that I think most Latter-day Saints and most scholars of Mormonism probably have never known about Phelps, or if they did, they didn't know to the extent that you bring out. So are you trying to rehabilitate Phelps? Are you trying to put him in with, uh, with him within a more prominent position within the early Mormon history? Definitely to put him in a more prominent position. Uh, in the introduction to the book, I actually make an important point. William Wines Phelps deserves more attention than he has received. Of those Latter-day Saints who recognize his name, most know him only for his epic hymns, though they would be hard-pressed to name them. In recent years, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has revealed that W.W. W. Phelps was frequently at the apex of key events in the Mormon Church's first 15 years. My contention is that during those years, 1830 to 1845, Phelps was among the 10 most influential Latter-day Saints in developing the kingdom of God on the earth. And... Uh, and as I've explained that to other people, they can see my point and, and definitely agree with me. Uh, we've known for a long time that he had a good relationship, at least for uh, many years, with Oliver Cowdery. We know that he had uh, friendship with some of the Whitmer people. Uh, we know that Hiram and his older brother and he were close. We know that for many years, uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon worked as a very important duo. Uh, and... There were, and then Brigham Young later and, and a few others, but uh, none of those were more significant than the relationship that Joseph Smith had with W.W. Phelps and how much he relied upon him uh, for his uh, abilities. And we could go into some of those details, but for sure, he needs to be recognized as one of the key players in the first 15 years. See, I like how you say that, that he's one of the key players, and you're kind of pushing back some of these people that have been brought up to the forefront within Mormon history. You mentioned Brigham Young, for one. I mean, he's often talked about quite a bit. And here you're saying, no, Phelps needs to be put in a much more prominent position because Phelps was there before the apostles become more prominent. And I think that's pretty significant. Do you think you might get pushback from anybody by arguing that? I haven't received any pushback uh, at this point. Uh People who really want to study history want to get the, the correct answers. And most people know that Brigham Young actually wasn't there from the beginning anyway. Uh, and in his very early years, he was a missionary and successful at it, yes. And when the 12 apostles were called in 1835, they all were called because they were good, young, missionary proselytizers. That, that was their main talent they had. And they were all young men. Uh, the oldest was... Uh, 33 and the youngest was 21, uh, and uh, Brigham Young was the third oldest, and uh, he was uh, a year older than Joseph Smith only. And so only three of those are older than Joseph Smith, and the others were younger. But the 12 apostles, when they were called, were sent out to do missionary work and to preside over branches that were away from the established presidencies. The two presidencies with high councils were in Ohio and Missouri. And therefore, the presidents in Ohio and Missouri were higher church officials than the apostles. And during that 11-month time that Phelps was in Kirtland, and there was this council of presidents, they definitely were higher in authority than the 12 apostles, although they were begin the apostles were beginning to gain month by month more prominence. But uh, the Latter-day Saint movement based in Utah has 
long looked as at the Twelve Apostles as being very significant to the leadership of the church under the direction of the first presidency. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of people refer to the three in the presidency and the 12 in the apostleship as a quorum of 15. And it is true that these days, uh, all major decisions made by the church uh, as official proclamations and as official practice of doctrine come from that group of 15. Well, that was not the case in the 1830s at all, and it wasn't until 1841 that uh, Joseph Smith and his first presidency, which is solidified a little bit more, uh, put the 12 apostles under them. Uh, and so, yes, the, the apostles became very important. And as far as the uh, Brighamites, or the ones who made the exodus to Utah, and then uh, build up the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, headquartered in Salt Lake City. Well, they were led by Brigham Young, and that was because uh, he made the claim uh, that they had the keys. They were the rightful ones to lead the church in the event of the death of a president, and uh, they won the day for perhaps over half of the folks in Nauvoo. And, of course, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, does have 16 million members, which far overshadows any other movement in the Latter-day Saint movement, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so Brigham Young is considered a hero, and he served as president of this church for 30 years and presided over it three years before that as the chief apostle, and that's the record. And, of course, he did everything that was imaginable in helping set up uh, this set of colonies out here in the West. So, of course, he's important. Uh, and he even played a significant role uh, over Phelps in Utah because Phelps didn't end his career and his contributions in Nauvoo. His importance as one of the top 10 people ended about 1845, but he still played a significant role in Utah under Brigham Young until he died in 1872. Yeah, which your book goes into quite a bit as well, which I was fascinated by. Yeah, you've convinced me that W.W. Phelps is kind of like the underrated high official of the church that really needs to be brought out. And that's what I really appreciated about your book. You've convinced me on that. It's, I, I was amazed how close he actually was to Joseph Smith. And that's something that you talk about in the introduction of your book and all throughout the book is this, this, uh, this connection that he had with Joseph Smith. And you actually argue that looking at Joseph, looking at W.W. Uh, Phelps's life, you're not only getting a glimpse of Phelps's life in the early movement of the, of the Mormon movement, but you're getting a really fresh glimpse at Joseph Smith and how, for instance, how the book of Abraham was translated. You have a whole chapter that goes into detail about how Phelps helped Joseph Smith translate the book of Abraham. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with the book of Abraham, Bruce, could you tell us what the book of Abraham is and how Phelps helped Joseph Smith translate that book? Certainly. Let me just say that uh, many people who read uh, my chapters in advance among peer reviewers and others, they admitted this is really telling the important history, particularly in this Ohio-Missouri access that was access that existed in those days. Uh, and they could see how it began to work in ways that they had never seen it before. They didn't realize how groups of high priests led in both places. It's been kind of felt that Joseph Smith did every leadership thing, but he always worked with councils, always. Uh, true, he insisted that he was the prophet, but he always worked with councils. 
uh, and seeing all that was significant. Okay, uh, getting to the book of Abraham, it's important to recognize that uh, no other uh, strain of the Latter-day Saint movement other than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints headquartered in Utah has any interest or respect for the so-called Book of Abraham. In fact, uh, Richard Howard, the longtime historian for the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, later Community of Christ, and a wonderful man and great scholar and historian, uh, wrote a book uh, about scriptures and in which he said, we have no interest in that Book of Abraham. We don't consider it legitimate scripture at all. We recognize that the Mormons out in the West do, but not us. And uh, and it, my guess is that you folks in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ, the Bicker Tonight movement, have had no interest in it either. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, let me get, uh, say in a brief way how it became uh, canonized scripture for us. It was published in the Times and Seasons, which is the church's periodical, in three segments in March and May of 1842. And this is after Phelps had taken over the day-to-day supervision of the printing office and the publication of the Times and Seasons. And his imprint was all the way through and getting it published. And I'll go back to that. Uh, but it was published and, and read, and people kind of liked it. But it only came out in the newspaper, and unless you kept your newspaper, uh, not everybody kept reading it, and it certainly wasn't in, in any of the Holy Scriptures. It wasn't in the Bible. It wasn't in the published Doctrine and Covenants. It wasn't in the published Book of Mormon. And so a few people knew about it, but not everybody. Uh, the church made its exodus to uh, Deseret or Utah in 1846, 1847, and subsequent years. And by 1851, uh, Brigham Young was well settled into the idea that the church was now settled enough in the uh, Great Basin and the mountains in Utah that it was okay now to send the apostles out to all the world and uh, set up a shop in all these other places. And he himself had been a strategic elder in uh, in the British mission uh, in 1840 and 41 or 39 40 and 41 in fact he was the president of that british mission and that had produced lots of converts well the british mission continued to be the strongest mission of the church for another 40 years and always it was presided over by an apostle and in 1851 one of the newer apostles franklin d richards was appointed to be the president of the british slash european mission and he decided that he wanted to get into the hands of these British converts who were being commanded to get ready to go to Utah in their exodus. They were commanded to gather. But in order to prepare them, he wanted to give them good reading material. And he produced a book, he bound it and everything, and he put on the outside the title, The Pearl of Great Price. And as he did this, he included a few different sections that are in the Doctrine and Covenants. So it was kind of duplicated in that sense. Uh, he included uh, what had been published in Ohio, uh, portions of the Joseph Smith translation or new translation or his work on the Bible, uh, the first several chapters that had been published, and he called it the Book of Moses. And then uh, he put the Book of Abraham in there as he uh, had gotten it from uh, uh, the uh, Times and Seasons and as it had been reprinted 
in uh, the Millennial Star, which was the organ of the British mission. And and he put in the Articles of Faith and a few other different things. Uh, well, these British converts, as they gathered to Utah, they brought this with them. And then other people who were in Utah, including all the American saints, went, well, how do I get a copy? I want this too. And so uh, it was decided that uh, a committee would come together and would publish uh, a book called The Pearl of Great Price. It retained the same name that Franklin D. Richards had given it. Some of the redundant portions of the uh, revelations to Joseph Smith that were in the Doctrine and Covenants were taken out. That was not necessary. But uh, we have the Book of Moses, and it was given eight chapters and versification by this committee. And we, <clears throat> and we got the uh, Book of Abraham, which was not divided into chapters or verses in any of the newspaper accounts, but they were divided into chapters, five chapters, and all the verses. Uh, and then we had the Articles of Faith, and we also had the early portions of Joseph Smith's history about the first vision of the Father and the Son in 1820, and then his experiences with the angel Moroni from 1823 to 1827, the uh, translation of the Book of Mormon from 1827 to 1830, the publication of the Book of Mormon. So those early portions of his official history also made it into the Pearl of Great Price. So here we have this volume, and then it was decided uh, by the successor to Brigham Young, John Taylor by name, uh, that uh, this book, The Pearl of Great Price, would be canonized. And so it was officially done so by uh, the law of common consent or the raising of the hands when it was proposed by the First Presidency. And so since that time, uh, we've had these four F F bodies of Scripture. I call them five, actually, because we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I consider them two different things, but the Holy Bible. And then we have the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And sometimes they're published together as a quad or sometimes as a triple, we call it the triple combination. That's the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. And almost everybody, when they have their Mormon scriptures, have it in a triple or a quad uh, setting uh, in the LDS Church. So that's how it came to pass uh, in getting it uh, canonized. But let me now go back to how it even emerged in the first place. Uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were all kinds of treasure seekers in the Egyptian tombs and uh, caverns where these pharaohs and female deities and nobilities were buried in religious ways and they were mummified and all this great artwork in their tombs. Uh, and, and some of the treasures were just looted right and left. Uh, and out of one of the nobility person's tomb uh, in uh, the Luxor area, Thebes, uh, were taken several mummies and several papyri that were attached to the mummies in their religious belief system that was to carry them through eternal life. And then they made their way eventually to New York City Harbor and a fellow by the name of Michael Chandler picked them up. He claimed to be a nephew of the guy who uh, had obtained them, but we've now since discovered that that's all bogus, and we don't know exactly how he got his hands on them, but he was a huckster, and he went around several <clears throat> places in the United States uh, showing off these mummies and these papyri, and in the process of time, he had sold a lot of them off, and uh, he heard as he went to Cleveland, Ohio, which was right next to Kirtland, 
that uh, Joseph Smith was interested in ancient things and could supposedly translate Egyptian types of things, as he had claimed to do with the Book of Mormon. And so uh, uh, Chandler came to Kirtland and showed uh, Joseph Smith these uh, papyri, and he was immediately fascinated with them. He had done some study uh, of languages up to that time, and he believed in a in an Ur language, uh, an original language that uh, Adam and Eve had that was the pure godlike language. He believed that that existed, and he felt that maybe as he would study Egyptian, he'd get closer to that because of its antiquity and, and being so ancient. And so he wanted to get these papyri. Well, uh, Chandler, the huckster, uh, felt that he wanted a, a good price, and he said that I'll only sell uh, the papyri if you take the mummies also, and he required that it be um, twenty. $2,400, which was a huge sum in those days, uh, for, for that collection. But uh, quickly that amount was gathered and, and given to him, uh, to Chandler, and he was off on his merry way. And Joseph Smith apparently told uh, Oliver Cowdery and W.W. W. Phelps, his two main scribes right then in uh, July of 1835, that uh, these... Papyri contained the writings of Abraham and of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. And Joseph, uh, as many know, is a great grandson of Abraham. Uh, and immediately then, in July of 1835, these two scribes wrote down some of the things that Joseph Smith dictated to them. But they all three dabbled a little bit in what they considered the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. However, Phelps did most of that. He did it a whole lot more than Joseph and Oliver and the uh, existing Kirtland Egyptian papers, as they're known, and as they've been all published in bright and vibrant color now by the Joseph Smith papers uh, in 2018, uh, contain all of those, and you can see what's there. Uh, we have W.W. W. Phelps, more than anyone else, putting... Uh, symbols that he sees on the papyri in a left-hand column going down the page, and then what he considered their meaning in English uh, on the right-hand side. And a lot of people have said, well, that was his key to translation, and we don't really know the process, but in W.W. W. Phelps's handwriting, we have the first several verses uh, of the existing Book of Abraham put down in the manuscript, and it looks like when Phelps left the church in eight, uh, as it considered to be an apostate in 1839, he had with him a lot of these Egyptian papers, and when he came back, he brought them with him, and then when he ha helped start editing in the Nauvoo printing office, uh, he had them there, and, uh, and so he spurred Joseph Smith on, and Joseph uh, then translated, uh, and I put that in quotation marks because he had a different definition for translation that we, than what we normally think of from one language to another today. But he uh, mm -hmm. translated uh, the uh, the rest of the Book of Abraham as far as it now goes, and, and they came out in those three segments in the Times and Seasons. Uh, that So he, it was somewhat done in Kirtland and somewhat done in Nauvoo, and it's obvious that there are Hebraisms in there and Joseph and Phelps were very much involved together in, in Hebrew things, 
And so many people have contended, I'm not the only one, there are Hebrew experts who have backed me up on this, that some of those Hebrewisms have actually had to do with uh, Phelps. And then this introduction to the book of Abraham, as it's printed in all of the official Latter-day Saint literature, saying that it was written by the hand of Abraham himself, well, that was Phelps who wrote that as an introduction. Whether anyone else believed it, uh, I guess, is open to question. But uh, as I've talked with the two co-editors of the Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith Papers Project, and these are Brian Howglid and Robin Scott Jensen, respectively, they agree with me that all three of them, uh, and then later, Warren Parrish, who joined up as a scribe, all four of them uh, all believe that uh, the writings of Abraham were on these papyri. Of course, now we have to come up with the concept, well, was it uh, a dictation of revelation, as he had also received for the book of Moses, because in his earlier so-called translation of the Bible, he had added several additional verses and chapters, actually, to those early parts of Genesis. Uh, Moses chapter 1 is entirely different. It's called the visions of Moses, and that doesn't even appear in the Holy Bible. Uh, And so it's inspiration, the Latter-day Saints claim and believe, as they feel they are guided by the Holy Ghost, as they studied all those scriptures uh, and, and all that. But it's now obvious that the papyri themselves are part of the Book of Breathings or the Book of the Dead uh, that were papyri that were put into the tombs of these nobility uh, to accompany them in their so-called Egyptian quest for eternity. And and so it's not a direct translation. I I hope that's somewhat of a background. No, that's a, that's that's a that's a wonderful, comprehensive, and exhaustive background. It's fantastic, Bruce. Thank you for explaining that to us. And it actually leads into another question I have for you, because so you're you're arguing that W. W. Phelps was a major part of the translation proje- process in quotes of the Book of Abraham, which is instrumental because that's not mentioned in the Pearl of Great Price. I would I would suspect that most Latter Day Saints are not familiar with that. So that was a really sweet nugget that you brought out in your book. But the other thing that you have throughout the entire book is that Phelps was a ghostwriter for Joseph Smith. And I think that's something that I could see that being controversial, but you bring out some really interesting points that I think you're making a new argument with this. And am I correct to say that, that you're pointing out that Phelps was more of a ghostwriter for Joseph Smith than what most scholars have given him credit for. Could you explain that to us a little bit more? Well, we've got to recognize that Joseph Smith hardly wrote anything with his own hand. Almost everything that comes from him and signed by him was dictated, at the very least, by him and written down by scribes. Uh, And there's this vast scribal culture, and we could identify about 15 prominent men who served as scribes for him in various ways throughout the years. Uh, the most prominent would be uh, Oliver Cowdery with the Book of Mormon and Sidney Rigdon a lot with the various visions in the and revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. <clears throat> and then we have uh, Frederick G. Williams, who was a participant and a scribe. Uh, but W.W. W. Phelps, uh, in the long run, was uh, perhaps as important as a, of a scribe as anyone, save Oliver Cowdery when you consider the Book of Mormon. <clears throat> the Book of Mormon is considered by Latter-day Saints in the uh, Utah-based church 
as the keystone of our religion, based on a quotation from Joseph Smith that he made to the Twelve Apostles. And so the Book of Mormon holds high prominence among our people, uh, and therefore Oliver Cowdery, as a scribe for that, holds high prominence as a scribe. But next to him, the next most important scribe would have to be W.W. W. Phelps. Um, remember, he's the publisher, he's the printer. Uh, Joseph Smith had a whale of a time getting the Book of Mormon printed, and it was costly, and Martin Harris had to spend oodles of money from his uh, estate in order to even make it possible for the Book of Mormon to be published. Well, with Phelps on the hand, uh, on site, he knew how to obtain the right kind of a printing press, which he did, and he knew how to run a printing office, which he did. And now the church, with, uh, with its united order or united firm, uh, which is part of the law of consecration in those days, uh, had a printing establishment, and it could publish anything they wanted. And and the big thing that they were going to publish right off was the Book of Commandments, which was a collection of the revelations uh, that had been given to Joseph Smith up to that time. Uh, and then there were going to be other, many, many other printed projects. But then the printing press was destroyed in 1833. But a new one was obtained and it was used in uh, Ohio. Well, when Phelps uh, joined up with the rest of the brethren in Ohio in May of 1835. He pretty much started to run the printing office there, too, because he knew more about it. He helped train other people. Uh, and he had such a major hand in getting the hymn book out, the Doctrine and Covenants out, a new edition of the Book of Mormon. Um, and uh, the periodical at that point, which was called uh, the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate, and in all of those newspapers, he wrote so many articles, and he ex he explained the doctrines of the church in ways that even Joseph Smith was incapable of doing on his own as a writer. Uh, but it, but he always gave credit to Joseph Smith as the prophet and seer. He was definitely always saying, "Here is the prophet. He's the one receiving revelation, and here's what he said, and and here's the meaning of it." But he was the one who actually put out the the uh, materials that explained the doctrines. That was true in uh, Missouri, and it was true in Ohio in 1836, and then became very true in uh, in Nauvoo. <clears throat> the uh, printing press in Nauvoo had eventually three newspapers that came out: The Times and Seasons, which started in 1839, right after Nauvoo was founded. Then uh, there was the Wasp that was put out for about a year as a secular newspaper. And then uh, it was followed up uh, with another secular newspaper called the Nauvoo Neighbor. When I say secular, it was uh, covering a lot of the news of the day and many other things that didn't have direct bearing on religion. However, Phelps saw to it that uh, there were a lot of religious ideas put out in those two other newspapers as well. Well, uh, People have always recognized that these newspapers were important, but because Phelps's name was never put in as an editor of any of these three, very few people knew for the longest time that he had anything to do with it. Uh, there were people who wrote about Nauvoo and said, well, yeah, these newspapers were important, and we had Don Carlos Smith, the younger brother of Joseph Smith, as the editor there to begin with. He was aided by Ebenezer Robinson. Uh, Don Carlos Smith, uh, the younger brother of Joseph Smith, died suddenly in August of 1841. So Ebenezer Robinson took it over again. But then he was pushed out, we later know the full story, uh, by the head 
heads of the church, Joseph Smith and the Twelve Apostles, and Joseph Smith became the official editor in February of 1842, and uh, this went through October of 1842, and so many people just naturally assumed, well, all the editorials, at least, uh, in the Times and Seasons under those eight months were Joseph Smith's work. After all, it did say, with many of these um, doctrinal-based editorials, it had ED, meaning editor, at the end of it, which certainly implied that it was Joseph Smith who wrote them, put them out, and then his own name was put on several of those, too. And so it was just naturally assumed that he was the man. And then he was replaced by John Taylor as the official editor, and this was always put in the newspaper, in the boilerplate at the beginning, John Taylor editor. So uh, people naturally thought that all the main religious material there, the editorials and so forth, were authored by John Taylor. In fact, you can read in many items of literature supposed quotations from John Taylor out of the Times and Seasons from 1843 and 1844, 1845, uh, because he was the editor, they just assumed he wrote it. Well, I've now found that Phelps is actually the religion writer and all those things. Uh, and then uh, William Smith was the so-called editor of the Wasp, but uh, what I found out, and putting a long story short, is that uh, Joseph Smith certainly was not in the printing office to to take care of the publication. He was busy on 57 or so other things. Uh, and then John Taylor, who was the business manager along with Wilford Woodruff uh, during that period, they were busy on many other things too. And it was obvious that Phelps was running the show. And then as I studied very carefully every article in the Times and Seasons, every article, this is on digital basis because now they're available online. Uh, every article in the Wasp, every article in the Nauvoo Neighbor, I came up with about 600 articles that were written by Phelps based on the content and his writing style. His writing style was was really unique. You could identify what it was like clear back in the way he wrote his articles in the Evening and the Morning Star and in the Messenger and Advocate. Yeah, because you mentioned even how Phelps, there are certain words that Phelps would use that Joseph Smith wouldn't have used necessarily. Could you explain that? And Because you said the writing style. Could you explain that in more detail? I th the reason I'm bringing this out is because you're bringing, I think this is one of the one of your key arguments throughout the book that I can actually see you getting some pushback, but I really like it because I think you're bringing something new to the table. It's important for us to consider. And you've thought quite a bit about this, probably more than most scholars in Mormonism have. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, Bruce, but could you go into more detail with that? Because this is really great stuff. It certainly was the most stunning thing that I found in this whole study. And the, and there are many significant parts, as we've already indicated about Phelps's life. But this is the most stunning, that he was the major ghostwriter for Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, throughout all of 1842, 1843, and up to uh, Joseph's death in 1844 uh, and in the Nauvoo period. Now, it is true that uh, Joseph Smith gave almost weekly addresses to the Latter-day Saints in the Grove and other places in Nauvoo, and he traveled around to the other Mormon settlements close by Nauvoo, and he also did some other visits in other parts of the state and in, and in other states where he gave addresses, and therefore he became a powerful orator, and many of these orations are uh, recorded. You, you learned from Matt Godfrey in your previous 
podcast that uh, William Clayton and Willard Richards tried to keep a record of what Joseph Smith said, and then there were others besides those two, uh, and therefore we have a pretty good record of his orations as best they could be put together uh, by these various scribes. They didn't have shorthand, but they did their best in putting to, together these, and they're, they are very important. But the actual printed materials that came out in the newspaper in the name of Ed, editor Joseph Smith, or in his own name, I found out to be from W.W. Uh, Phelps. But let me first say that uh, another great scholar in our, in our uh, system named uh, Samuel Brown, uh, who has written numerous articles and books about Joseph Smith's theology of the family and of the heavenly idea of bringing the whole family together and uh, and all this marriage system had to do with family. He's written extensively on these things, and he discovered that uh, some of the doctrines were actually ghost-written by uh, Phelps. He said that uh, Phelps began his ghost-writing in 1843 because he concluded that because he saw these various articles about marriage and temple work and the eternal family coming out about that time. And so we figured, well, this is when he began his ghostwriting. Well, fine. Uh, Samuel Brown said uh, in this very important article that, uh, that he entitled it, The Translator and the Ghostwriter, Joseph Smith and W.W. W. Phelps. And so he used that word ghostwriter extensively throughout that really important piece. Uh, we've also had other people like Michael Hicks identify the fact that this monumental, epic, multi-page poem that corresponds with uh, the uh, vision, which is section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants on the Three Degrees of Glory, that poem was not written by Joseph Smith, even though it had his name attached to it, but was indeed penned by the poet W.W. W. Phelps, and Michael Hicks de determined that. And actually, I, back in the 1990s, published a piece how um, Phelps was the ghostwriter for all of the political documents that came out in the name of Joseph Smith as he campaigned as a presidential candidate. He wrote several or several tracts and and small publications uh, came out in his name that were sent all over the place, including a major one, which is his platform. Well, all of these I was able to identify quite easily without any argument, actually, uh, and it was peer reviewed for sure back in the 1990s that the he was the political clerk for Joseph Smith. Well, as I got into my Nauvoo period here in my studies and studied all of those articles thoroughly, I could see that it all started before Samuel Brown thought so, and uh, it actually began a, a, a month or two even before Joseph Smith took over the uh, the newspaper and and began having Phelps write in his behalf all of these uh, doctrinal pieces. One of the major books in Mormondom is The Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. A lot of people quote it. Many people have even identified it as a fifth standard work, because if you have the scriptures, then you have Joseph Smith's teachings, then they combine together to make the Mormon doctrine, so to speak. And all kinds of people quote teachings, they say, or teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. It's a book that came out in 1938 as published by the church's historian, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a grandson of Hiram Smith, and who was also an apostle at the time. And uh, and because of his credibility, uh, it was accepted as a, a major thing. What he did is he uh, took items uh, that uh, 
were from letters that Joseph Smith wrote, some of them to W.W. Phelps, by the way, that had doctrinal things in them, uh, and then some publications that supposedly Joseph Smith was the author of. And by the way, uh, three of those that he put in there from the Kirtland period, I'm sure that they were those written by Phelps as well during that 1835 period to which they're attributed. Uh, but anyway, uh, to Nauvoo, we have uh, several very significant doctrinal articles that are quoted lots uh, by uh, people as they study Mormon theology, and they cite teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, and this Joseph Fielding Smith put as his reference, uh, Joseph Smith edited this volume in the Times and Seasons, and here it's volume two, uh, uh, January 18, or pardon me, uh, May 1842, and such and such pages. That That's his reference. Well, I've concluded, uh, based on all kinds of research, that it was uh, Phelps. And what I actually say is that his style, his rhetoric, his paragraph length, his exaggeration, officiousness, punctuation, length, forcefulness, and the use of foreign phrases. Uh, he liked to throw in Latin phrases, especially, and uh, that is one major tip-off. When you see these Latin phrases, uh, that was Phelps doing that. It wasn't Joseph Smith who didn't know any Latin on his own. Uh, but certainly all the, the whole style is definitely his. And uh, you're right, there might be some pushback. I have felt that there may be some. Everybody who has reviewed the book so far and every audience that I've spoken to so far has not given me any pushback, particularly after I explain everything. Uh, it remains to be seen what might yet come. But the book has been selling just fine in Deseret Book Stores. And so I uh, haven't seen any pushback yet. That's great, Bruce. Yeah, the reason I bring this up is because for all the history nerds out there, I think this is one of the key uh, arguments that you're new arguments that you're bringing out with your book. And I think that it's really important. And I actually can see this being uh, talked about quite a bit for the net for the for the next few decades, because you're bringing up things that no one has really brought up before. And your show, I mean, Sidney Rigdon was is kind of was kind of tucked away in Mormon history, he's kind of brought back, but he's always known within, you know, uh, especially with among believers and and just people who study Mormon history, he's kind of known as the spokesman for Joseph Smith, right? He was supposed to be kind of like if you know if Joseph Smith was Moses, you know, Sidney Rigdon was supposed to be his Aaron. But was with this ghost that's even found in the Doctrine and Covenants and existed on and off in that fashion for about seven years. I say on and off because there were times when Joseph Smith was fed up with Sidney Rigdon and and even dumped him, but then brought him back. Uh, because he was so talented and he forgave him and that kind of thing. So he was on and off a strong spokesman for Joseph Smith in the 1830s. Yes. But uh, yeah. I think you're right that we're going to see this now with Phelps. I hope it's recognized. I, I do want to say, though, that Samuel Brown, uh, recognized as he is as an, an important scholar and writing in the Journal of Mormon History, which was such an important uh, medium, uh, really got people recognizing that there was a ghostwriter for a number of things, at least. And I've expanded upon that. Yeah, absolutely. You really show that potentially, and I think you make a very strong case for it, is that Phelps was, in a sense, kind of like what Signe Rigdon was for Joseph Smith, was, an, was another Aaron. And a lot of Joseph Smith's ideas, 
the way he's, the, 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 his just his idea on millennial thoughts, his ideas on translation, uh, scriptural understanding. It, it was almost like Phelps was the ghostwriter, and Joseph Smith was almost just signing off on it or talking with Phelps. But Phelps was the was one of the key players, and I just think it's such an important argument. I do want to emphasize, however, that even though W. W. Phelps knew his Bible very well, and in all of the writings that I say that he wrote, some of them in his name uh, back in the evening in the Morning Star in Missouri and in the Messenger and Advocate in Ohio, and those not in his name uh, in Nauvoo, uh, by the time he had written all the various articles, he had cited passages from every single uh, book in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He just really knew his Bible. He also quoted a lot from the Book of Mormon, more than any other person ever did in those writings. And uh, so, he, uh, yes, he was able to do that in ways that Joseph Smith couldn't. He also put in several historical and geographical bits of information about ancient religions and and Hindus and uh, Confucius and, and, and many of the uh, different religious movements that had come to American shores even. He was able to write about those because he knew about them. Uh, but, okay, even though that is true, I emphasize that he always attributed these revelatory new ideas that is the Mormon esoteric feelings came through revelation to Joseph Smith. And he was really expressing what he felt Joseph Smith had received by revelation. I will agree that uh, he put them in paper and even some of the so-called revelations uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, portions of those are actually Ghostwritten, ghostwritten by Phelps, but not too much. But the Book of Abraham is a major thing that he helped with. And then, of course, these doctrinal essays that come out in that supposed fifth standard work, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, well, he ghostwrote for those. But he always attributed it to the prophetic seership of Joseph Smith. That's fascinating. So in a sense, you're arguing... Joseph Smith was the prophetic mouthpiece, but Phelps was the Aaron in the sense where if Joseph Smith is Moses, Phelps is Aaron in the sense that he is writing out and, ex and, and explaining in a way uh, Joseph Smith's revelatory experiences in a way that Joseph Smith possibly might not have been able to, especially with the the, the care and the, the detail uh, and the, just the expression that Joseph Smith being an, 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 an uneducated young man would not have been able to do. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, one thing we've got to recognize, though, is that the newspaper culture had really taken over as the main medium of spreading information uh, in America. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had a lot to do with it. Thomas Jefferson, a whole lot to do with it. And, and Alexander Hamilton. And those two uh, fought each other tooth and nail, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, uh, political partisanship, and then it continued at, even after those guys died, and, and Phelps was part of that. Uh, newspapers were so significant. That's how the word about history and geography and learning and, and current events uh, were made manifest to people. Uh, and that's unlike Moses and Aaron. They didn't have newspapers, obviously. But uh, in the sense of representing the teachings and revelations of Joseph Smith in the written newspaper world that fell to Phelps. Yeah. 
This is this is just really good stuff. Thanks, Bruce. Now I've I've been keeping you a lot, so I, I apologize, but I'm really been enjoying this conversation. So I'll, I have two more questions for you because I think the listeners might want to know. So here's the big elephant in the room that a lot of people know. Phelps was excommunicated from the church three separate times, and I, I what I really enjoyed about your book is you show Phelps's personality. So basically, I, I want to ask this. Because Phelps was excommunicated three separate times and he always returned back to the church, what do you think this shows about Phelps's personality? And also, what do you think this shows about how the early church functioned? Well, it's really a long story in all three cases, but uh, I assert uh, that uh, all three of those were very unusual cases. And uh, in today's church, uh, they follow Doctrine and Covenants, Section 107, and many other early revelations of Joseph Smith as they set up these church courts or disciplinary councils. And yet those procedures that are followed today were not followed in all three of these cases where uh, Phelps was excommunicated. Uh, The first two had definitely to do with jealousy and envy on the part of other people who uh, were jealous of his talents and they wanted to have more influence than he had. And they pushed him aside. It was a power play and a coup of sorts in Missouri without Joseph Smith being there. And uh, and then Joseph came to think that uh, Phelps was among the so-called traitors who had turned him over to the enemies, making it important or making it a fact that uh, Joseph and his uh, friends had to be incarcerated in, in jail for six months. And uh, they blamed the so-called traitors, and Phelps was put in that group, and therefore he got his second excommunication that way. And his third excommunication had to do with the fact that he had taken some plural uh, wives without the permission of Brigham Young, and uh, and Brigham said, you can't do that. You need to have permission. You did this far away from here, and you needed my direction. And so in a group setting, Phelps was excommunicated once more, but in this case, it's Kind of interesting. He was rebaptized two days later. It was just to make that point. Uh, regarding his personality, he wasn't eccentric. Uh, he loved to uh, show off his abilities, particularly in languages and his speaking ability. He loved to tell jokes and tell stories. Uh, he was quite a character, as far as we can tell. People would laugh with him and laugh at him. But then, with his many talents, he uh, there were people who were jealous of him. Uh, so that led to uh, these three excommunications. But uh, when Joseph Smith took him back, I think it was largely due to the fact that he realized that uh, Phelps had been blamed for things that he was not guilty of and was happy to have him back. And he needed him anyway in the publishing business. Uh, it's interesting that Joseph Smith took Phelps back, but he didn't take back any of the Whitmer group or Oliver Cowdery or uh, some of the others that uh, had fallen away uh, from the Twelve Apostles, yet he was perfectly happy to uh, bring Phelps back, and that's an interesting part of the story. Uh, And then Brigham Young used Phelps a great deal as well. Uh, And uh, so even though he was odd, and people knew it, and he was kind of an interesting fellow as he walked around town with his spectacles and writing poems as he did so, and, uh, and he had an interesting family life, even though he was an eccentric, uh, he was, however, rec- uh, respected greatly by Joseph, Hiram, and certainly Brigham Young, and John Taylor, and other leaders that way. I think that's another important thing about your book is that how you bring out Phelps's personality and how during these 
three excommunications. I feel like you're re- rehabilitating Phelps in every single one of these instances because I feel like what I would term like heritage histories of Mormonism. Sometimes they paint Phelps in a very uh, in a negative light, where you're bringing out you're bringing out the contextualization of the circumstances, and you're kind of explaining it from Phelps's perspective, which I felt like. I don't, I don't really know many people that have done that. So I really appreciated what you did with that. And it brings out a whole, well, it really has. And uh, there are all kinds of folklore myths about this. Like uh, Phelps was to blame for virtually everything that happened in Missouri, that he wrote the affidavit that uh, governor Boggs used for the extermination order. It turns out that it was Thomas Marsh, the senior member of the 12 apostles who wrote the affidavit. Phelps wrote nothing of the right. sort. And he did. Uh, so I, I, the, the biggest pushback I've had initially is actually, well, I thought that Phelps was guilty. <laughs> uh, and and I was able to show them. Uh, so that's been the pushback, actually, uh, trying to rebuild him, rehabilitate him. Some people have said, you did a good job of defending his honor. And I guess in some ways I did. But you've also indicated that I've tried to contextualize everything. And one of the great praises for your biography of William Bickerton is that you provide the context for the events that were part of his work. Well, I provide the context here, too. And uh, and context is so important when you look at the lives of human beings. If you're going to understand the human nature and the human condition, you have to know the whole context. And that's what I try to do. Absolutely. Well, thanks for saying that, Bruce. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you. Your book is filled with contextualization and 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 not only that but you contextualize it within the personalities of the people you really did your homework uh you look at joseph smith's personality you look at phelps's personality you look at uh the whitmer's personality you look at all these different people and you talk about that in detail and that was something i really appreciated and uh i don't want to keep keeping you because i i know i'm taking up your time but this is just again i i just want the listeners to know that this is really an important book it brings out new arguments for Mormon history that we have never seen before, and uh, it's it's just a fantastic read. And we haven't even talked about Phelps's hymn writing, so it just goes to show you Phelps is known as this hymn writer, and that's what he's got his prominence for. But during this whole conversation, we're talking about everything else that Phelps did that was just as important, if not more important, shaping the early Mormon church. Wouldn't you say that's right, Bruce? Well, definitely in those early years. But the thing is. It was in the uh, newspaper culture, and uh, and people didn't hold on to those newspapers. There were people who did, you know, the official historians, and the leaders of the church did take with them copies of all those early newspapers, and that's why we have access to them now, and they've all been digitized. But uh, the average member of the church would read and then lay it aside. And then when they made their exodus, they certainly didn't take the newspapers with them. And then when they got to uh, their new home in Salt Lake City and Deseret, the Deseret News came out uh, as the new publication, and once again, Phelps was the major writer for that and publisher for the first several years. And he also published the Deseret Almanac, uh, and that was in his name. But anyway, he he continued to do all those things there. Uh, my point being that, uh, yes, he, he did this, but people, uh, after a while, wouldn't know it. And uh, and the majority of the Latter-day Saint uh, gathering uh, from Britain and the rest of Europe uh, really took place in the 1860s when large groups of people came, even during the Civil War years, that uh, some ships had 800, 900 people on them. They were loaded with uh, all these new converts, and then they would make their way uh, by wagon train to uh, their new home. And then after 1869, they could come by rail 
and so it was even faster. And all these people came. Well, they didn't have access to these early newspapers. They didn't have a computer that was digitized to see these things. And the only thing they came to know about Phelps were these songs. And therefore, uh, as the years went by and uh, the history was put out only sparingly, and then when they were written, and you talk about the heritage and the devotional literature type of histories, uh, they didn't go into much detail. Uh, they admitted that Phelps was uh, an important uh, publisher and scribe, uh, but they didn't go into any detail. And then they would actually attribute to him some false accusations regarding the Missouri Mormon War in 1838 and 1839. And then they didn't know anything about what he was doing in Nauvoo in the 1840s that has come to light in the past 30 years. So, yeah, uh, he just was not known. And so what people did know and what people now know, unless they've started to study, is is those hymns. And they like them, but uh, that's all that the average person seemed to know heretofore. Yeah, absolutely. This is great stuff. So for, for again, I just want to reiterate, we're talking with Dr. Bruce Van Orden. He wrote the great uh, Phelps biography called We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. W. Phelps. It's a new book. It's, it hasn't even been out a year yet. Um and uh, before I let you go, Bruce, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to seeing from you in the future? Uh, in the uh, June uh, conference for the Mormon Historic History Association that's being held this year in Salt Lake City, that's a rare thing. It's usually held at other places. Uh, but they are emphasizing a lot of the early Utah history as a theme in that conference. And therefore, I submitted the idea of all things Deseret. Uh, the word Deseret was really played up a lot in those early years, and that was largely due to Phelps. He used that word Deseret all the time. He belonged to all kinds of things. He helped write the Deseret Alphabet. He published the Deseret uh, Almanac, the Deseret News. He was part of Deseret all the way through, University of Deseret. Uh, and so I'm going to tell the story of his time in Deseret and Utah. Even though it's in the book, uh, I'll make a presentation of it uh, there. And that would probably be my last presentation uh, in historical conferences regarding him. I am starting to work on John Taylor. John Taylor was the successor to uh, Brigham Young in the Mormon church uh, based in Salt Lake City, the third president of the church. And of all the 17 presidents that we have had or now have, the present one is set number 17. Uh, he's received, Taylor, the least biographical in, uh attention. In fact, what has been written about him is really not that good or that uh, that thorough and certainly without contextualization. And a few people have recommended that I get involved with that. And so I'm starting to do some of that. I don't know if I'll get a whole biography, but uh, I am going to write different pieces about John Taylor. Oh, terrific. Well, I look forward to reading those. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much for your time. It's been an honor. Thank you. 